Hello, poets, lyricists, detectives, mysteriosos, and seekers. I'm Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of National Marble Writing Month, and I'm here with my lyrically-minded co-host, Brooke Warner. Our show's theme is The Mystery is the Clarity, which is a statement our guest, the poet Sharif Shanahan, said in an interview. And it struck me, uh, Brooke, you know, uh, one of my favorite bits of writing advice comes from Roland Barth, who said that literature is the question minus the answer. And that's almost like a Zen Cohen, I think. You know, how, how do you write a story that opens up uncertainty instead of providing the firm ground of an answer? And then why is that good? Don't we want our questions to be answered in the books we read? I was thinking this all made me think about my friend Maud Casey, who wrote a book, uh, The Art of Mystery. And it's not about the genre of mystery which she says is about finding the answers, but about finding the questions. So she's in the Barth camp and she says, mystery has always been the draw for me from the very beginning before I could even name it, the seduction of the in-between, what isn't visible, the world behind the world. That's where it's at for me. So who are you? Who am I? Where are we going? What is this feeling inside me? Why, why, why? What does it all mean? I wonder this all day long. Writing, reading, don't answer these questions, but they allow me to ask them and offer the company of other minds asking them. And I think this is such an interesting idea to essentially decide that the mystery in life is a more powerful force than the answers we have, or the experience of the mystery itself is the answer. And that there is perhaps a greater power to uh, residing in the mystery and a greater comfort even, especially when we're in the company of other doubters, our fellow writers and readers. So, so Brooke, what, what do you think of uh, mystery being a tool for excavating life? And then I'm curious what your take is on the role uncertainty or the ineffable has in memoir. Well, I certainly believe in the power of mystery as a driving force in our lives. I think that mystery itself explains the unexplainable. I was thinking about things like who we love and what we're drawn to and what we believe. And of course, all of that stuff is shaped by our biologies or our experiences. But in every single person, there are surprises and things that don't necessarily make sense to others. And I've always thought, you know, that those mysterious aspects or qualities of human beings are also kind of wholly integrated, right? And what I mean by that is like a person might surprise you with some mysterious quality of themselves, you know, either you discover it by accident or just over the course of getting to know of know them. And then that's becomes part of who they are. Uh, And it doesn't have to make sense. And that's what I think you're getting at, you know, in a way. And uh, that's, that answers that same question, right? The mystery is the clarity. So I guess I'm going about answering your question in an esoteric way, but it lends itself to how I think about memoir writing because memoirs unlock people and they show us aspects and depths of people that are not necessarily there on the surface. Writers share their innermost thoughts and proclivities and their understandings of the world. And then they're showing us how they exist in the world. And that's what I love so much about it. And I've met people whose memoirs I've read and then, you know, marveled at the depth of what's underneath the surface of their experience, especially if I, you know, if you just meet someone in passing, it's not that you don't think they have that profound depth, but I think in reading a memoir, you can just go like, gosh, there's so much underneath the surface. And then that's true of each of us. And so that's what I love memoir for. I think it, um, it draws writers who want to explore the mystery of their lives and the bigger world. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of genres that that writers are drawn to. Um, You know, obviously, we tend to cover more memoir fiction and, and poetry in our podcast grant. But what are your thoughts on all that? 
Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you're right. I think the premise of writing a, mis- a memoir is to unlock mysteries. It's interesting just to think of it like that. And I think the premise of writing fiction is about unlocking mysteries as well. Maybe that mm-hmm. is like kind of in some ways the fundamental thing or one of the top three to five things uh, to write one and read one. And it, it's, it's just that, that some stories, fictional and non-fictional, are shaped to different degrees by being ineffable or providing more clarity or, or trying to provide a certain type of clarity. And Sharif talks about how the experience of mystery is a type of language itself. So reading to experience rather than to know is valuable. And I think that that's a key you know, part of poetry and, and a part of the pleasure of poetry is reading for the mystery. And in fact, I think, you know, poetry is rooted in mystery in a way that other types of writing aren't, uh, or it has a higher degree of it. And I, I read the poet Matthew Zapruder's book, Why Poetry, a couple of years ago, and I strongly recommend it as a way to think about poetry and understand it. It's a very accessible narrative book that tells a lot of stories also. And and, and he says that poetry is a, is a constructed conversation on the frontier of dreaming. And I love that because it's at once intentional in the construction part, uh, which is obviously so meticulous in a good poem, yet it's all about the mystery because it's on the frontier of dreaming. You know, it's got one step into dreaming. And similarly, he says, poems make possible a conscious entry into the pre-conscious mind, a lucid dreaming. And again, there's this interplay between something made and conscious and then something that goes beyond consciousness. And it's that beyond consciousness that I think a good poem breathes into. He also says, if a poem is really good, you can't really say what it's about. So he's essentially saying that, that the mystery is the clarity in that statement. You know, it's, that's the marker of a good poem, which I think Sharif would agree with. You know, a poem moves associatively. It traces the movement of our thoughts. So the experience of the poem is often the purpose of the poem as much or more than any message. So I'm, I'm curious if you see this as the purpose or the joy of Poetry Brook, and if it's also perhaps part of the frustration. You know, I, th- I think we're, I mean, I remember being taught to read poems, to find an answer and articulate it, you know, to decode a poem rather than just to reside in the mysterious experience of a piece of writing. And I think people are generally taught to decode mess- poems and find their messages. So, but I, you know, I wonder if that's perhaps the wrong way to go about it. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because it makes me think back to middle school English and that most of us are exposed to poetry in that way. And then we're just taught to break it down and figure it out. And it's so much in the head. It's so cerebral. So I love what you're saying, you know, and in terms of appreciation, I think you certainly appreciate more if you just let yourself feel it rather than feel the need to figure it out. And, you know, like fiction and memoir, I see poetry as self-expression, of course, and everyone expresses themselves differently. And that alone is something to marvel at, you know, that each of us expresses ourselves in a way that's as unique as our fingerprints. And so I love this idea that poetry is something to take in and just experience, that we don't necessarily have to make sense of it, or maybe that there's just different ways of making sense. We just give so much uh, attention to our intellectual sense making and not often uh, to our body sense making. Uh, And I find meaning in poetry, of course. I mean, I read poems and I find meaning or I make meaning. And that's in memoir too, right? Just the sense that a a writer might 
mean one thing and a reader might take it in in a different way. So like a poet might have a different intent, uh, but then we filter through our own experience and then we make it shape or adhere to what we already know. So I guess the practice here would be to enter into what we read with that baseline, what we know, but then also be open and ready to receive something that's totally new or which allows us to be with wonder. Uh, and mystery and wonder are connected, right? Yeah. <laughs> Reading and writing can both be seriously enhanced when wonder is present. You know, and a lot of us, of course, lose touch with that because of what you were talking about earlier. You know, we're trying to figure it out, explain it. And so the analytical mind can over shadow or overpower those body experiences. Yeah, definitely. And just to keep quoting, I quoted Francis Bacon in my book, Pep Talks for Writers, because he said the job of the artist is always to deepen the mystery. And I've heard it said that the less intelligent a person is, the more they'll be certain about things. So I think this gets at a purpose of writing, to write with nuances in mind and to explore the counterpoints and to write with an openness that allows the reader to essentially collaborate and enter into the story. But as I say that, I wonder how you teach a writer to deepen the mystery in their writing. And the main thing that I can offer is just to read a lot of poetry and to get comfortable with ambiguity in writing and to open up questions and not try to necessarily determine things with your writing. And, and I was even thinking of Michelle Phoebus on this topic, who we had on the podcast a while back, and, and how she said it's often been taboo to talk about craft in terms of the personal, you know, meaning our psychology and our wounds and our bodies. And, and all these things aren't our work, of course, but she elevated them to the level of craft because she saw craft as residing beyond the intellectual spheres. It's typically conceived in, as you said, Brooke. And then and then Sharif's poems are, are definitely crafted for the intellectual realm, but there's also a psychology, a wound or wounds, and a body at the center of his poems. So I think he defines craft on these different terms as well. So Brooke, just to revisit um, Michelle's redefinition of craft, I'm curious what you think of it and how that can help a writer uh, write to the mysteries. Yeah, well, I do hope listeners will go back and listen to Michelle Phoebus's interview because it's so powerful. Um, and I do love her redefinition, mostly because it's validating. It's validating of writers who work within these realms. And because Michelle is a memoirist and because of the nature of her personal writing, she experienced a lot of pushback and a lot of criticisms, just like so many writers of personal narratives and even more so female writers of personal narratives, you know, by People who will say things like, you know, psychology, a wound, a body, as you said, are somehow less valid drivers of our narratives. But of course, they're not. And I would say quite the opposite. And when we had Danny Shapiro on the show a while ago, we talked about obsession. And Danny, when writing her beautiful memoir, Inheritance, offered up this idea that she'd been circling circling this singular obsession for a long time, you know, this singular question, which was a literal mystery in her case of who she was and things that she couldn't explain about her identity. And so she wrote in some way that this had always been a central question, an obsession, uh, because of how strong that mysterious presence was for her in her life. And Linda Joy Myers and I, when we teach our memoir classes, we actually talk about obsession as a positive force for memoirists because it's often so clarifying, you know, 
again, that word. And obsession can point you to the things that you care about. And oftentimes it points you to the things that need to be better understood or that you need to heal or reclaim or just process. And then that can be the springboard for memoir. Uh, But healing and reclaiming and processing is more the realm of therapy than memoir writing, but it can and often does start with those things. So putting a craft lens, I guess, around these obsessions in the most positive sense of that word to me is both important, but also it's a form of reclaiming in the redefining, which is to say that writers of personal narrative don't need to be dismissed, shouldn't be dismissed, um, you know, just because of the nature of what we write. Yeah, I love the way so many of the writers we've had on Right Minded cut against the grain and redefine writing to be on their own terms. And I know I'll carry the phrase, the mystery is the clarity into my writing. So I can't wait to hear what Sharif has to say about it. And I'm I'm sorry to say, Brooke, uh, missed out on the interview for personal reasons. I had a delightful time talking with Sharif and I learned so much. So uh, stay with us after this short break. We'll be right back with Sharif. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Sharif Shanahan, who is the author of two collections of poetry, Trace Evidence Poems, which just came out, and Into Each Room We Enter Without Knowing, which was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Poetry and the Publishing Triangle's Tom Gunn Award. He's received all kinds of awards, including a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship, the Wallace Stegner Fellowship, and a Fulbright Senior Scholar Grant to Morocco. He's also an assistant professor of English and creative writing at Northwestern University, where he teaches poetry in the undergraduate and graduate creative writing programs. Welcome, Sharif. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a treat. And and I, I love your title, Trace Evidence. And I'm, I'm going to read the definition according to Wikipedia. Wikipedia says, trace evidence is created when objects make contact and material is transferred. And this type of evidence is usually not visible to the eye and requires specific tools and techniques to be obtained. And due to this, trace evidence is often overlooked and investigators must be trained to detect it. So I was I was wondering if or how this definition relates to your collection or or how do you interpret trace evidence and why did you choose that as a title? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand trace evidence as as you just defined it. Um, the title poem "Trace Evidence" is a, a kind of dramatic staging of a conversation between the speaker of the poem and his mother about their cultural and ethnic inheritance. And the title seemed kind of wide enough to hold uh, each of the three sections of the book, you know, which is concerned with identity, mixed race identity. Uh, blackness in the Arab world, uh, phenotype, questions of light skin blackness and, you know, dark skin blackness, right? Uh, phenotypic expression. So, so what I'm thinking about with trace evidence is the way that the questions that are being asked by the speakers in the book and in particular in that title poem between speaker and mother are the consequence of, you know, centuries of colonial violence, the layers of empire in the north of Africa, where the mother figure in the book uh, is from by origin. Um, And then also, of course, uh, U.S. American racial politics, uh, traumatic racial history in the United States, um, and the, the kind of current dynamics that are an abiding consequence of that history. Thank you for all of that. I, I love your poem, um, Mulatto Quadroon, because it, it starts out with a simple declaration. I want to tell you what for me it has been like. 
but 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 then the poem shows how it's seemingly impossible to tell what it has been like, except what it has been like is communicated through the the challenges and and maybe the inadequacies of language. You know, speaking mm-hmm. to how you are a part and a part at the same time, and and how you appear on the outside but remain within, and how you appear within but remain on the outside. So so self is inherently layered and nuanced and a contradiction without solid ground, it seems. So I was wondering if you could read this poem so our listeners can experience it and then speak to this theme of living a part and apart, especially in relation to your exploration of the question of your, your racial identity, as you, you talked about previously. Sure. Mulatto quadroon somewhere between. I want to tell you what for me it has been like. To speak at all, I must occupy a position in a system whose positions I appear not to occupy. Though some say such non-position is my position, speak from that placeless place outside the system, etc., some would say and have said. If the placeless place is created by terms of the system, then it must be within the system, even if it appears otherwise. And so it may be that the position presumed to be of body might better be regarded as a position of thought or a receptivity to possible experience as conceived by the still implausible eye of a man who defined the flimsy self he carried against those whom he did not understand or know or in any real sense see. And if the possible vision of that implausible eye accounted for you in name only, then filed you under consequence, side effect. It is not that the system fails to position you. It positions you actively and specifically nowhere so that you appear on the outside but remain within or you appear within but remain on the outside which is to say, in other words, a part and a part. And so if to speak in a particular social world, I must occupy a position and that world consists of positions that are clear, but none of which clearly I occupy, then it may be that I cannot, even if I want to, tell you what for me it has been like. And so... I love that ending. And so thank you, the indefiniteness of it and the repetition of it. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could, could talk about, you know, how this speaks to this theme of living a part and a part more. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, as you said, you know, before I read the poem that, you know, there's this desire on the part of the speaker to convey his experience, you know, to whoever is reading, whoever is listening. And then we are dropped into you know, the necessary thinking and negotiations and interrogation of the system through which any of us would be speaking in the first place. And so given his subject position within that, within that system, you know, communication is challenged. Um, He is difficult to locate, maybe impossible to locate within, within that system. And so, you know, hopefully by the time we get to the end of the poem, we understand a little bit more, of course, of what it has been like for him. Um, But it's only through this lyric meditation that that becomes possible. And in performing the impossibility of it, we begin to understand it a little bit more deeply. 
And the, the other thing I would say about this, you know, for your listeners who maybe aren't looking at the poem is that the title, Muvado Quadrun, um, somewhere between, as I read it, somewhere between that language is actually not, you know, written out at the top of the poem. There is a double colon between Muvado and Quadrun um, to, to indicate that and uh, that it's it's some position between these two words, but also more important than that is that mulatto and quadroon are in quotation marks uh, to kind of signal to a reader upon entry into the poem that even as we're talking about subject positions and a kind of racial liminality, uh, we're also talking about language and terminology and how the, the language communicates or fails to communicate the positions. And so it was important to me to have this poem at the beginning or near the beginning of the book grant because it it establishes the racial liminality that's so important to understanding the speaker's circumstances, but it also challenges the effectiveness, the integrity of language and the terms connected to racial position. Thank you so much for explaining the title. I wasn't sure how to pronounce it sure. um, because oh, it does yeah, sure. need an explanation. And that's so great that you provide it. So thank you. And I loved what you said about, you know, that the poem is in some ways a performance of the impossibility. And that plays right into the theme of our show today, which comes from a line in an interview you did with LitHub, where you say the mystery is the clarity. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought that was so interesting because we so often look to language to provide the clarity and our, our motive to write is so often to solve the mystery, but, but you're using language to say what actually can't be said in language. Um, I would say you're a poet of the ineffable. And so I'm curious, how do you make the ineffable your language, your mode of expression and effect, and, and why is the mystery the clarity? I love that question, you know, and I, I really appreciate it. Um, I think there's a certain uh, component of the process of making lyric poetry that we can't really account for. And that we, we as makers of poems really need to submit to the act of making and the act of discovery that is essential to any poem, I think. You know, when we sit down to write a poem, if we know exactly what it is that we want to say and, uh, you know, the poem exists to communicate that, you know, the poem in my experience is more often than not dead on arrival, you know, that there's something inside us. It can be an idea, an experience, a memory, a feeling, whatever it is that is agitating us into making, that is compelling us into making in maybe uh, a less kind of pejorative or, or negative affective sense. Um, and that once, once we begin that process, you know, I think if we really submit to it, um, we have no idea where it will take us. And it's my, it's my belief about lyric poetry or you know, the aspect of, of making and reading lyric poetry that to me is most gratifying is the poem's capacity to touch that which cannot be said, um, to communicate that which we cannot communicate in the way that you and I are talking right now. And, you know, part of what I believe, and so that is, that is the mystery, right? Like the, the mystery is the clarity that I love that you pulled that, that phrase. Thank you for spending time with that interview. And again, for this question, the, the mystery for me is, is inside that experience of encountering the ineffable inside a poem, you know, the poem drops us out of it. We are now in a languageless place, but we are experiencing something. We are feeling something that is not languageable. And, and that is the thing um, that the poem exists to touch or to bring us to. 
And we know it's happening because we feel it in our body. And we might even say, oh, well, I'm moved by that, or that was a hard poem, or, you know, it stayed with me or whatever language we might put to the experience that we're having after we've read the poem. And so, you know, for me, part of what interests me about exploring the subjects that I'm interested in inside poetry is that in a way, what I'm talking about with the questions of identity that are kind of central to this book and also to the first one are to do with human divisiveness, human separateness, and the ways in which we've divided ourselves as a species. Some in some of those ways are, are, are totally positive and beautiful. Some are seemingly innocuous, neutral, and some are very clearly rooted in hate and fear. And part of what I think is happening vis-a-vis the ineffable when we're we're reading a lyric poem and a lyric poem drops us out of it is that we are returning to some kind of egoless state where uh we are all and you know i i understand how sentimental this will sound but i believe it in my bones um this this kind of pre-languaged pre-personhood uh connected unified state of being, which in my belief is our initial state of being. We enter the world before we are given a name, um, partitioned out of that oneness into personhood, gendered, raced, you know, country, language, so on and so forth. And I, I think the poem is bringing us back to that or close to that, that place. And so there's particular power for me as a maker of poems to explore divisiveness in the space of poems for uh, the, the poem's capacity to unify. I love that because I think so often students or people who, who are taught to read poetry, they're, they're taught to decode for a certain meaning, a very tangible meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and I love your thoughts on just experiencing the poem and have, having that experience be the meaning. You don't have to pinpoint like a definable meaning per se, yes. which is I think really important because I think it, it helps invite people into poetry um, more. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm very curious, like since you said that your right is an act of discovery. And I, so I am curious just about the process, how you make writing an act of discovery. And then, and then I think part of that communication of uh, the inevitable poetry comes from the, the rhythm and the feel of the words. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote you. Um, I think this is from another interview. I'm not sure where, but you said, if the medium of the poetry is breath, a poem consists of rhythms of speech, of course, but on some level is closer to our breathing than our speaking. So I'm interested in how you construct your poems around breath and how poetry is actually closer to breathing than speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, pro- the process for me, it's really funny. I say this in interview context and people are very suspicious or some people laugh um, and maybe understand, but I very rarely sit down to write a poem, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> I took that from reading about your process, actually. Oh, okay, right. Like, I, I, I mean, I do, clearly. I mean, I, I've written quite a number of poems and have published two books now, but it, for, for me, the process doesn't begin with a conscious desire to make poems. The process begins with whatever the the material of the eventual poem is and my wrestling with it. And language is one of the tools that I use to wrestle, to figure things out, uh, to pursue, interrogate, celebrate, honor, so on. And, you know, it usually starts out for me as a paragraph of prose about something. And it's in my, you know, my iPhone note app or in a Word document in a folder on my computer and you know, I won't look at it. I won't think about it. And then I'll go back to it and I'll continue to pursue the thing. It's not yet 
thinking poetically. I'm really thinking spiritually and emotionally. I'm thinking about the essence, uh, essences of the questions, the subjects, the memories, the feelings, whatever it might be. Um, and I continue to pursue and try to understand what my spirit, my psyche, my body, which is holding memory of this thing, are trying to communicate to me. And the language brings me closer and closer to it. And eventually at some point in that process, because I'm trained as a poet, um, poetic craft enters the engagement with language and it begins to look like I'm making a poem. And, you know, when I've, when I've hit that point, I usually have already found the bone of the thing that I have been pursuing all along. And, and then I begin thinking aesthetically, you know, then I begin thinking about making what I'm working with a poem. And that formulation of the process for me, I think has, has become the most effective approach to it because it, it obviates the possibility of a well-made poem that really doesn't have a heartbeat. I don't mean that rhythmically or musically. I mean, in terms of its thematic, emotional, intellectual freight, like a well-made poem that is maybe not about much, you know, respectfully, or, um, you know, a poem that clearly emphasizes, you know, the, the surface, the, the garments of the thing and not uh, the lifeblood as my teacher, Linda Gregg uh, talks about in an essay called the art of the art of finding. Um, and so, so that's the process for me. And, you know, my, my thinking about the, the music and how poetry is, is closer uh, to breath, you know, um, I think as I remember that interview, it wasn't an authoritative statement. I don't know that I would stand behind with conviction, you know, with absolute certainty that it is in fact, poetry is in fact closer to, to breath and to speaking, you know, in an immediate way, it's sort of, it is very clearly, of course, voice, uh, communicating with, with someone singing to, to someone, but, the, the breath emphasis, I think, when that's spoken about within poetry circles or poetic criticism is often to connect the poem with the physical body as opposed to the mind or even the heart, you know, that, you know, even in traditional prosody, for an example, with iambic pentameter, part of why that was such an abiding mode of speech and music within poems was that it emulated the heartbeat, you know, and we could, we could feel the language within, within our bodies, there was some kind of con connection or connectivity through the music that was happening with the language on the page and, you know, this physiological process that would happen irrespective of, uh, sitting down and reading a poem. Everything you were talking about with your, your, your process and the process of discovery and, and kind of sitting down and not even quite knowing or deciding that you're writing a poem about a subject. And, and I, I thought that process was really interesting with your, your poem on the overnight from Agadir. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Agadir right, but um, yeah. your book is, is a triptych and this poem is, is a long poem that makes up the second section and it revolves around a bus accident that you survived in Morocco and it's organized across stanzas and pages and it contains multiple voices and differing line lengths. And so I just wondered if you could, could tell us more about this poem and its centrality in the collections structurally and thematically? Mm -hmm. uh, I left New York in uh, the fall of 2015. I left my, my job and my apartment in, in Brooklyn, and I went to Morocco for what I thought would be a year on 
a Fulbright to conduct family genealogy and uh, genealogical research and also to research literary and visual representations of blackness in the Maghreb and in particular in Morocco. And, you know, two months into my time there, I was on an overnight bus that crashed. Um, the town that it left uh, is called Agadir, and I was headed back up to Rabat, where I had an apartment. You know, and I think it's it's the anchor. It, the eventual poem became the anchor because it seemed to hold, you know, all of the questions um, that that the book is exploring. You know, the third section really focuses on uh, time and one's ability to inhabit time or inability to have a to- inhabit time in the present moment, you know, and that, that poem came to be the, the process of, of that poem again, you know, I, I was not really thinking about turning that experience into poetry for a long time. Um, it was, it was a really traumatic experience. I was badly hurt in the accident. I was medevaced to Zurich, Switzerland, where I lived with, my ex-partner who's Swiss and where I had community and I had a number of surgeries and was in the hospital for two months. And then there was a long convalescence and several months long convalescence. And I really came out of that experience the following fall when I moved to California. And so during, during that time, I would say January, I got out of the, uh, the hospital on New Year's Eve. So I would say January and, you know, until September, I was filling notebooks, you know, thinking about, uh, what had just happened to me, you know, and what the meaning of it was, you know, I think I'm going to my ancestral homeland for a year and I end up convalescing in my childhood apartment in the Bronx, you know, and the, the irony is thick, you know, it's clearly rife with, you know, spiritual and metaphysical questions. And so there were just like loads of notebooks filled with thinking and, snippets of conversations with, with friends and, you know, loved ones who, I was in touch with and speaking with at the time. And, you know, when I got to California, I began to think uh, aesthetically about all of that language. You know, it was maybe six, seven, eight notebooks, maybe a little bit more even. And, you know, I went, I went through and looked at the language and began to, to build. And the first question I had about the eventual poem that would come out of that experience is whether it would be a book length poem, because there was definitely enough material for that to happen and I saw in conversation with teachers and, and peers that it, although it could have been a longer poem, it, it need not be. And, and so it, you know, it, it exists in the, the version that we, we see in the, the book, you know. Um, I think the questions of identity are really extensions of questions of home and belonging and having a place here among others on this earth. And, you know, that, that very clearly is at the genesis of the protagonist's journey at all in, in the middle poem, you know, why he was there in the first place to experience what he experienced is a central question of that poem. And so it very clearly intuitively felt to me like this was the physical center of the book that would anchor the discrete lyric poems in the first and third section. Um, and the way a friend described it that was really interesting to me, a, a really brilliant poet friend um, who read the book in manuscript said that, you know, it didn't seem like the first and third sections flanked the long poem, but that they were in orbit of it as though moons of it somehow. And, you know, looking at the kind of core 
questions or position that is expressed by this long poem from different vantages that were also not static, you know, constantly moving around in orbit of this long poem. And that resonated for me as a formulation. So Sharif, in, in closing, it was just National Poetry Month, uh, but I don't think poetry should be confined to just a month. And, and hopefully the month spawns another month, a year, and a lifetime of reading and writing poetry for people. So I thought to to help motivate that ongoing love and interest in poetry, I was curious what some of your favorite collections are that you'd recommend. Well, I, I always find that question so difficult, but what I can recommend are three recent collections that I've been spending time with. Um, the first is Suddenly We by Evie Shockley. The next would be From From by Monica Yoon. And the, the third and last would be The Shared World by Vivi Francis. I've been living with those three, three books for the last several weeks, and they're really beautifully in conversation with one another. So those would be my recs. Great. Thank you so much, Sharif. I'm going to go get them and live with them myself. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take care. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Brooke, I have a trend for us that we visited once before, but is fresh in my mind because we both spent some serious time recently at the Bay Area Book Festival, and I was simply blown away by being in rooms full of writers and readers, and I was blown away by hearing authors read their stories, and I was blown away by the conversations that attendees sparked with their questions, and I was blown away just by feeling the pulse of excitement and engagement as people, you know, walked from session to session and bought books and talked in the hallways. And I was blown away that, that I even sold some of my books and I got to talk to people as I signed them. It was also refreshing and energizing. And I realized how much I've shaped my life according to my introverted quarantine side of myself for three years now. And I generally haven't felt like the world is truly, you know, normal again. And it, it actually might not be normal, but it is opening up. So I decided that our trend this week should be that book events are back. Book festivals are back, and even though your routine might be to stay home and it might be tough to get up and get out, trust me, it's worth it. It's been a, a super tough three years for festivals, obviously, and it's amazing. More of them didn't go under, so make going to book festivals a trend in your life. And I'm curious, Brooke, did you have the same feelings I did, and, and what benefit do you think going to local book events offers? I did have those feelings, Grant. Yeah, for me, uh, I'm at the Bay Area Book Festival and other festivals mostly in the capacity of publisher rather than author or interviewer or panelist sometimes. And this year I got to interview the memoirist Nicole Chung and I spent time uh, at our booth with my authors and I watched Nicole and my authors engaging with the public uh, more than I actually engaged with the public, but that was still super rewarding. Uh, and even coming at it from that slightly more removed perspective, I felt really happy for how far out of the pandemic we've come. Uh, and importantly, this year's festival was a totally free event. And so we saw some different things as a result. And that was notably more people, more young people, more families and more diversity in general. Um, and I'm on the board of the festival. So that's why I was paying a little closer attention to those kinds of things about demographics. And that really was the goal for us in making the festival free in the first place. Um, and I'll just say in general, events, you know, book events are free, <laughs> you know, and then in that way, they're really community building kinds of experiences specifically because they're not exclusive. So I agree with you about the the trend part. Yeah. And one thing I liked about the Barry Book Festival, and this actually, I realize applies to most book 
of festivals, or maybe all of them, is is how it combined the local with the national and even the international in this case. And on a small level, you know, I discovered these really neat journals that a local person makes from book covers uh, from old books and bought several of those. And, and then I also became acquainted with a lot of small local publishers I didn't even know about. And then I love how the festival is a celebration of local authors, and it's a way for me to discover local authors and meet them. At the same time, amazing authors are coming in from across the nation and around the world. So it's just so fun to look at, at who's speaking where. And we often talk about how cool it is that social media can give you direct contact with an author, but I'm taken by the different nature that contact um, happens at a book festival. You know, when I when I do bookstore events, for example, they're usually time bound and, you know, you, you might be able to linger a bit, but they but authors usually have to go somewhere else, you know, to a school or a dinner or a radio interview and book festivals because they last for a day or weekend you know they just have a more leisurely feel so it seems more likely that you might get into a longer conversation with an author or you might bump into them in the hallway and that's one delight of a book fest i think is seeing authors walking all about just like you are enjoying the festival yeah, for sure. I mean, they're out there enjoying themselves just like the rest of us. And I actually witnessed a very funny thing, which was that some man I didn't recognize was sitting and eating his lunch and reading a paper. And I saw these two people, clearly fans, walk up to him and ask if they would mind if he were in their photo. I mean, I was slightly removed. <laughs> so I was just kind of watching the whole thing unfold. Uh, so they had a friend take the shot of the two of them doing the thumbs up sign while the man just sat there reading his paper in the background. But then he like turned to look at the camera, humoring them and it was funny to witness because he was clearly at least well known if not a famous author I didn't know and these people were so delighted and I loved how he played along kind of like a willing prop uh, and it was just funny and cute so we're lucky to have the Bay Area Book Festival but there are a lot of festivals like this around the country Writers Digest just updated their list of book festivals so I recommend looking at that uh, and when I looked at it I wondered if people plan vacations around book festivals I hope they do it's pretty cool because you know, most of these festivals do happen in the spring and the fall, so people can be outside, and that's kind of the point. That's our next project, right? Uh, vacation guides that center on <laughs> festivals across the United States. And I love the story about the the author because that is one the, the the notion of celebrity authors is that most of us uh, don't know what they look like, actually. Exactly. <laughs> so so I, I'm just charmed by that. And I'm, I was also especially touched by the parents who were there with their kids. And I should note that book festivals aren't just for adult readers, of course. You know, children's book authors are a huge part of things. And there were so many activities and kids at the Bay Area Book Festival. I didn't have access to any book festivals when I was a kid. And I don't think I even met a real-life author until my late teens. But I can't imagine what it would have been like to hear an author read from their work as a young aspiring writer. Yeah, I mean, it is helpful. And it also, I think, importantly, sets this idea in kids' minds that you can be a writer or you can have a job in this world of books or book publishing. And I didn't know that either. I mean, I didn't know book publishing was a possible career until after I was out of college. So, you know, there's so much good about book festivals um, and the programming at festivals like inspires young writers and readers in ways that I think are really profound, something for everyone, hopefully, uh, and that we kind of aspire for that here. 
here, not necessarily something for everyone, but certainly something for every writer. So if you know an aspiring writer or a future writer, please turn them on to Write Minded. And if you like the show or if you've been a longtime listener, please do rate the show in your favorite app. It does help us uh, to get more discoverability and more discoverability keeps podcasts going. I know people know that, but it can be sometimes hard to take that action. Uh, We definitely love being here for writers every single week, and we will be in your queue next week and the week after that and the week after that too. Thanks for listening.